Current policies are taking the world to a 2.8 degree temperature rise by the end of the century. That spells catastrophe, yet the collective response remains pitiful. It's time to wake up and step up. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that always was and always will be First Nations land. We also hope that we learn to use the ancient wisdom that they've acquired from nurturing both their land and their communities for millennia before it was stolen. We can never have climate justice without justice for First Nations Australians. For 10 years now, every Wednesday, though not during the COVID where the radio station, the post was closed, but apart from that, Every Wednesday at 11 o'clock, we've been going to air in the Geelong region from 94.7 The Pulse. And we also distribute the program as a podcast after that. And because of that, many of our listeners are now all over Australia and even around the world. So to those of you who don't know, we actually are still a radio program. And after the sustainable hour comes the news and then we're followed by our colleagues who then are broadcasting a program called the Wednesday Lunchbox. And last week, we suddenly got to hear how they think about us and what we talk about here in the Sustainable Hour. So I'd like to play just a, a, an excerpt of a rant that they had about us so we can hear just a few of the arguments that they were talking about. Uh, it was all about renewables and here's Bob, Terry and Ken in Wednesday Lunchbox on the Pulse. I reckon, well, as far as I'm concerned, the only two alternatives are hydropower or uh, um, uh, nuclear power. Mm. And that will, that solar won't cover anywhere near the state. Nah. And neither will wind. What happens when the wind stops? Oh, well, oh, well there's we no don't power. light a candle. Yes. And do I you can't know, believe the people before us do believe you, that. Do you know, I read some figures the other day. Do you know, with all that's happened so far in the world with sustainable uh, mm. renewable, do you know how much difference that has made? 2%. 2% yeah. of all the millions mm. that have been mm. spent, yeah. it's made a difference of 2% to the... Uh, yeah. And the thing is... <sighs> Got to, these people have got to remember that Australia emits 1% yes, of the pollution, pollution, if I want to call it pollution, yeah. one lousy That's percent. That's right. And we're going hell for leather to close everything down. See, the first one was silly old Dan, not that that makes, uh, makes me uh, think about him, was uh, Loyang. Yes, should never Close that done. down. Uh, where they gone from there, from Loyang? That's years ago. Nowhere, absolutely nowhere. <laughs> you know, if I keep closing them down, you'll have to, those disdainables will have to get a candle. Mm. Coming up to 21 past 12, this is Wednesday Lunchbox on 94.7 The Pulse. Happy birthday to you.
<laughs> you know, you start. I actually come from a country where we really like candles. We put them on the table all the time, especially around Christmas time, because candles give this sort of warm feeling of hygge, we call it, coziness and togetherness and so on. But okay, leaving that aside, what's this talk about that we need candles? Uh, you know, Denmark is run on something like 70% renewables by now, half is from wind turbines. And, you know, on a day when there's no wind in Copenhagen, surprise, surprise, the power is still on. And as a matter of fact, the electricity system in Denmark is one of the most stable in the entire world. It's up and running 99.9999% of the time, all year round, day and night. We don't need the candles. We put on the candles because we like them, right? And such are the wonders of modern technology. We have things like batteries and other ways to store energy so that we don't need candles at night because the sun isn't shining. Tony, what do you think? Uh, I think it's really sad, Mick. I, like, I don't know these guys at all, but it's, yeah, it's sad that they feel they've got to uh, call us nutters, uh, you know, when, when we're stating facts. But that, you know, that's the sort of world we're living in. We've got a right-wing media that these guys probably subscribe to. That's all that, that they get. Uh, what I have a problem with, Tony, is that, that the myths that they're coming out with actually, you know, have economic consequences for all of us. So there's a certain responsibility for a radio station about what kind of stories it transmits and distributes out to people. And for instance, when, when Bob and Terry and Ken, they are talking about oh, Australia's emissions is only 1% of global emissions, that may be true. But you know what? It actually means a lot what the international community thinks about what we're doing here in Australia. And that has a direct impact on our exports. Two thirds of all produce from the farmers is exported. And they cannot sell their produce to the rest of the world if we are not doing our bit in the international community when it comes to cutting our emissions. That's just one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is that we are exporting coal and gas to the rest of the world. We only use 1% in our own country, but we are exporting vast amounts to the rest of the world. Yeah, and we delight in not counting those. Yep. Taking any responsibility for them. The other thing about the 2%, and that's an absolute lie, to claim that things have only changed 2%. He doesn't say from where to when, but the amount of renewables that we have in the electricity system is only changed 2%. That's an absolute lie. The International Energy Agency has the figures and what has happened is that we have increased the amount of renewables that there is in electricity production. In the 10 years that went from 2010 to 2020, we went from 21% to 28%. So if you do the maths there, I think you can say it in this way, that that's actually a 33% expansion of renewables in that decade. And they keep expanding, Bob, Terry and Ken. It's not 2%. That's a complete lie. And here in Australia, the figures are even better. In the seven years that went from 2015 and onwards, solar went up with 18%, while coal went down with 16% in our electricity grid. So, you know, you've got to keep up with the news. It's not enough to listen to, to the commentaries on Sky News. Anyway, let's hear a bit about the facts from around the world. 
we have our own news reporter, Colin Market, OAM. What do you have for us about what's been going on around the world? Well, thank you, Mick. Yes, our roundup begins this week in the south of France, where heatwave conditions have worsened over the last month and hospital admissions and death rates are rising daily. The news this week was that an ambulance was called to the Saint-Tropez home of 1950s film star Brigitte Bardot because she had difficulty breathing in the conditions. Brigitte is 88 now and regarded as an animal activist. Anyway, the medics administered oxygen to her until she recovered and decided not to take the um, uh, the ambulance trip to the hospitals, which are overcrowded and would probably be stacked up. Now, the reason that I started with this item today is that it'll probably spark the interest of Bob Terry and Ken, or as I like to call them, Statler and Waldorf, who were the two old men Muppets at the end of each show. They present the Wednesday Lunchbox, the radio program that immediately follows us on the pulse, and they call us those who came before, which has got a sort of nice biblical ring to it. Anyway, <laughs> those three old codgers deliver a wonderful source of Trump-style misinformation to Geelong Weekly. Bob, Terry and Ken are especially keen on climate issues, as you've already heard. They're strong supporters of coal-fired generators, and they uh, they want them to continue on until they could be replaced by either nuclear or hydro, is what they say. Now, where they're going to find hydro for Geelong, I don't really know. They reject solar and wind generation with the brilliant argument of what happens when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow, because nobody's told them about battery storage. Anyways... I reckon the news of a 1950s sex siren having difficulty breathing because of human-induced climate change might just get through their closed minds. When the evidence that's seen on every news broadcast and the facts from us, the program that leads into this, and 99% of the world's scientists clearly hasn't managed it yet. Now, the rest of this report all comes from the same source. It's the Danish independent newspaper, uh, Spelt Dugblood Information, which last week put together a whole issue under the headline of This is How Climate Change is Affecting the World Right Now. It begins by saying this is the summer of 2023, when the Earth's total temperature reached a record level. When forest fires and record temperatures are in southern Europe, violent floods are in Asia, and in the USA, citizens are cooled in body bags with ice. Climate scientists estimate that the temperatures we are experiencing right now are the hottest in the past 120,000 years. The heat will result in more natural disasters such as floods, droughts, storms and heat waves, that can be traced back to our overheated planet. But we are already seeing the consequences of man-made climate change all over the world. In Greece, at Athens, two wildfires have spread through the cities and forest areas at a time when the country is affected by the southern European heat wave. Since Tuesday, the country has experienced over 123 forest fires. Citizens are being evacuated 
as it is feared that the flames will reach an area with oil refineries in it. Authorities report that one of the fires was over eight kilometers long. Meanwhile, in South Korea, the rainy season has brought severe flooding and extensive damage. Some regions were hit by more than 60 centimetres of rain and more than 10,000 people have been evacuated as a result of landslides and floods. Homes and roads have been swept away and the rising death toll stands at more than 40, with nine missing and 34 injured. In Italy, hospitals are experiencing a sharp increase of 20 to 25 percent in emergency patients as a result of the heat wave that is still sweeping the country. It's setting record temperatures, a record in Rome of almost 42 degrees. Hospitals throughout Italy report that patients suffering from heat stroke and other heat related complications. Elderly citizens, among other residents of nursing homes, are most at risks, but People of all ages are looking for help from the hospitals. This also applies to tourists. Italy's Minister of Health last week classified 19 cities as being on red alert, meaning that the extreme heat in the cities is a threat to anyone in their areas. The minister pointed out that Italy's heat wave last year cost 18,100 lives, and it wasn't as hot as this ongoing summer. And in China, where this summer the nation is experiencing both severe flooding and extreme temperatures at the same time. Downpours in both southeast and central China have resulted in deaths, the evacuation of thousands of citizens and the destruction of infrastructure. And in Iraq, extreme heat with temperatures of around 48 degrees, lack of drinking water and dried up rivers constitute a significant crisis. And in the Horn of Africa, what is now a three-year drought has caused extreme devastation to one of the poorest parts of the world. Crops have withered, water has disappeared and livestock have died, causing famine and drought in large parts of Kenya, Ethiopia and Somalia. The drought is the worst in 40 years and has killed tens of thousands of people and left over 20 million of them hungry. Meanwhile, in India, more than 100 people drowned in floods and on Wednesday, the water levels reached the Taj Mahal, which was swamped. In the USA, almost 120 million Americans are currently in a heat wave that has broken 1,500 heat records across the United States this month alone. And the list goes on and on. It goes through Switzerland, which is suffering forest fires, Syria, which has wildfires, the Arctic, where the ice has all but even melted, and even Denmark, which is suffering an ongoing drought. Now, I could go on uh, in much more detail by just going through that newspaper, but the picture is clear. We are no longer warning of climate change in the future. We are reporting it. It is happening now. Are you listening, Bob Terrington? Because that's my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Thanks for that, Colin. Uh, you know, in, in that I kept a quick tally. There's probably forty, fifty thousand people that have died 
in that report and you didn't probably didn't get all of those. No. Colin? No. They, they are real human beings. They are human beings that have loved ones, right? The ones who didn't die, they reported, had their lives severely disrupted. Now, to give it a sense of what that means, within three kilometres probably of where I'm sitting right now, last year there were 83 homes that were evacuated because of floods. Now, those 83 homes that are disrupted, so let's say a couple of hundred people, the disruption didn't stop because it wasn't reported every day in the news. Their lives are disrupted today and every day. Yeah. In that regard, Tony, I'll just go in very quickly. Last year we were talking about the floods in Pakistan. It's no longer in the news cycle, but a third of Pakistan is still underwater a year later. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're the facts. They're the facts that, and we take no pleasure in reporting on those each week, but they're mm-hmm. the facts, right? They're real people. And, you know, we can comfortably predict, it's not that we're psychics or anything, but we can comfortably predict that like, this is the northern summer we're talking about. The southern summer, which is us, that's what we're heading towards. I think there's one word missing here, and that is the word accountability. Really, we we should not blame Bob, Terry and Ken. They are just passing on a story that comes from the media. It comes from Sky News in particular, doesn't it? Can we please have some accountability from those people in the media who are deliberately misleading the public, including Bob, Terry and Ken? But on the other hand, Bob, Terry and Ken actually ought to have accountability just as well because they do sit in a radio station and they are passing on i mean maybe they should have a chat with the station manager about whether it's okay that the pulse is spreading lies but the last thing is who's talking about you know the farmers last night i saw on on tv the farmers are actually talking about climate change just as well climate has you know impact on on your coffee bob on your wine on your medicine and Farmers for Climate Action are front and centre in that, and they've just brought out a policy recently uh, about what needs to happen for farmers from a farmer's perspective looking at the climate crisis and what can be expected uh, from a country that relies on on agricultural uh, exports. So whatever we value in life is going to be impacted. Mm. No. And, and, and again, about accountability. Bob, Terry and Ken, are you going to be taking responsibility for the fact that because of sea level rise, and this is according to a report that just came out from the Victoria Marine and Coastal Council and Life Saving Victoria, that here in our area, we are going to have a bill of $442 billion in economic loss because of sea level rise, because of climate change, because of people who are spreading lies about it so that we don't take any action on it. There's a bill there, right there, $442 billion to be paid because of these lies that are circulating. If you're really looking for accountability, I'd like to see somebody asking, no, demanding from the fossil fuel industry compensation on what they've done to Australia. 
And I'd start with the fact that for the past three decades, they've been denying, first of all, and then hedging and then lying and uh, greenwashing and saying, hey, we're going to we're going to be part of this. Uh, I'm taking full page adverts when, in fact, they are selling more fossil fuels now than they were three decades ago. And speaking of that, this is the most absurd The new modeling is showing that households here in Victoria can save 70% on their winter heating bills simply by switching from gas over to electric. We're saving 70% on our heating bills, or the heating costs, by ditching gas and going to electric. Did you hear that, Bob? Terry? Ken? You know, do you want to save 70% on your energy bills? And before they say that, uh, yeah, at what cost? There are government subsidies to allow us to make that change. So, yeah. Anyway, on with the show. Right. Our first guest today is Guy Lane. Guy's got an interesting story that very keen to to dig down into. He started something, a group, a, a movement called Vita Sapien, and he classifies himself as a navigator which is, to me, is, is fascinating. I guess we all, people with open minds, are really navigating what's happening. So, Guy, tell us all about what you're up to. Yeah, thanks, Thad. Um, I think I think being called the uh, the people that come before is actually kind of a really compelling name. <laughs> I, might sort of, I might pinch that. Um, yeah, so Vita Sapien is a registered charity in Australia, and uh, the main thing we're doing right now is we're advancing a life sustainable life philosophy called life-wise uh philosophy um and i just just coming back to the uh the uh, those who come after which is our three friends um i think part of the reason why it's they speak so freely in the way that they do there's a number of factors so one of those is referred to as the um the dunning kruger effect which is uh fascinating as a nobel prize was given to these two um sociologists or psychologists that discovered it and it basically says that when people have a very small amount of knowledge on a subject they think that they know a lot more about it and so they speak quite confidently on the basis of almost no information and so and that sort of explains some way how these three guys can just rattle on with all of that misinformation is because of this Dunning-Kruger effect is that the little bit of information that they've got from Sky News or wherever makes them think that they're actually subject experts when in reality they clearly don't know what they're talking about. And also people who speak like that speak very confidently uh, because they think they know it all that other people come along the journey and go, oh, these guys must know what they're talking about. So there's that. There's also another psychological effect called um, the Cassandra effect. And this is basically where people have a, an aversion to listening to or believing bad news. And this is really common as well. So it's really difficult to talk about the difficult stuff of climate change because everyone's like, whoa, talk to the hand. You know, I, I'm not up for that. And that and that's hardwired into the brain. So that that's another factor. And the other factor, which is sort of where LifeWise comes in, is that we we operate our lives on the basis of like a philosophical foundation that we may never necessarily have actually been able to write down or to understand in its detail, but we do nonetheless hold philosophies. And if your philosophy is that growth is good, um, if your philosophy is that everything's fine, we don't want people running around and, you know, that if if you want to make change in society, do it through the ballot box, for example, then these these philosophies actually underpin your views on things, okay? And so I'd say that those fellows that come after 
have the view uh, that they're probably moderns, which is to say that they don't really see in any real problems in society. They know how to get by in society. And so anybody that comes along and says, ah, we found a big, a big problem that we need to fix. They're like, well, we don't actually see, we don't accept that there are big problems to be fixed in the first place. And so it's, and this is where LifeWise philosophy came in because where, what I came to one day was, you know, if you accept that we have an unsustainable civilization, because politics is unsustainable, because it's short term and it's perpetrated by like corporate interests. Economics is unsustainable because it's based on growth. Our energy is unsustainable because it emits heat trapping greenhouse gases. Our materials are unsustainable because it comes from oil and it pollutes the environment. The deeper question though is why? Why have we allowed this system to grow and why do we allow it to persist? And, and I had that insight in 2016 on, it was two o'clock in the afternoon on the 18th of August. And I had that insight and I realized that it's a, it's about belief and it's about philosophy and it's about religion. And it's in that space that ultimately the answers to the climate and ecological crisis fall within that space because that what we believe is ultimately motivates what we do. And, and so what I did was was with that insight is I started to write down, well, first I went, I started to scan and look around at, broadly speaking, the philosophies in the world that Western people, you know, abide by. And so you've got your mainstream religions and then you've got like new age spirituality. And then you look in things like um, uh, eco-spirituality and you've got indigenous spiritualities and you sort of scan across that whole landscape of belief and philosophy and what you'll find is apart from indigenous and to a certain extent eco-spirituality, there is practically nothing that makes any meaningful sense to address the right relationship between humans and the living planet in the Anthropocene across the vast spectrum of that space. And so what I've sought to do with LifeWise philosophy was just in, a, in not too many words, just to try and summarize what a sustainable life philosophy might look like to give humanity the best chance of getting through this century and conceivably creating a sustainable civilization down the track once we've resolved this climate and ecological crisis. And that's the work that I've been uh, working on. I've been writing little booklets that encapsulate the philosophy with uh, introductory parts and an outgoing part uh, for the last two years. And if you go onto the website, vitasapien.org, V-I-T-A, Sapien, S-A-P-I-N, Vita Sapien is lifewise in Latin. So vitasapien.org, you can get the, the booklet there. And the, the middle chapter, the middle part is the philosophy itself, which runs about three, three and a half thousand words. And it's got three parts. And the first part is uh, a worldview, sort of grounded in the environmental sciences. So it's talking about the Anthropocene, climate and ecological collapse, the planetary boundaries, transition. Uh, and what, what I refer to as earthwork, which is what we're doing right now, which is the efforts that people make to, you know, resolve this crisis. The second part of the philosophy is the spiritual view. And so that sort of looks at spirituality in a, in a simple frame of reference with six core themes. And then we sort of address the climate and ec ecological crisis through spiritual, through the lens of spirituality. And then the third part is practices. And I've, I've just named two of the practices now. So one of the practices is to live with earthity and live with earthity basically means be a good environmentalist, you know, don't be racist, don't be sexist, don't, you know, do, be a decent human being. 
And then one of the other ones is um, is to live a VITA mission. And the VITA mission is basically that personal mission that you have your contribution to try and resolve the climate and ecological crisis. And so the, put, put together uh, LifeWise philosophy, um, it doesn't try to do what Buddhism does. It doesn't try to do what Stoicism does. It doesn't try to, you know, do, doesn't try to save your soul like the Christian Bible might. It addresses a gap in the market. And the gap in the market was what do we need to do? What are the key things that we need to have in our hearts and our, and our minds and, and the actions of our hands in order to give us the best chance of surviving the climate and ecological crisis? I think what the, what the fellows that come after don't fully understand, and they can't understand it because they probably don't have the mental faculty to actually read science papers, nor the temperance to actually go and listen to scientists or journalists who report on scientists or to actually find a scientist that actually understands it. They don't do that, right? But what they don't understand is that this climate and ecological collapse is going to rerun the Permian extinction. So 253 million years ago, 80% of everything that lived on the planet died off largely because of, because of global heating. And we, we're redoing that. We're rerunning the Permian. So it's not just like, the strawberries are going to grow out of season. We're going to annihilate most life on earth. And, and there is a very deeply spiritual aspect to that in terms of whether, you know, we individually want to partake in that or whether we want to do everything we can to fight it. Guy, this is very fascinating, I think, because uh, what you touched on there is both deep and yet at the same time also practical. My first question to you would be, so are you sort of like a priest uh, having followers? Is it like a church or is it more like that? No, you've written a book, people can read it and then they can take from it what they like. How how do you see the movement Vita Sapien that you have created? Yeah, so so Vita Sapien is a, a registered charity. Uh, I'm the founder and the chairman of the charity. LifeWise Philosophy is a book, is a philosophy that's written in a little book. Um, and what we're looking to do is we're fundraising to try and put together an, what we call an, an operational center. So the, the mission is to basically reach out to 53 million people. So we believe that there are 53 million people in the Western world who would adopt LifeWise philosophy as their primary view of the world. All right. So they're already out there and we just haven't got our product in front of them for them to read it yet. Okay. So our mission is a mission of communication. And in order to communicate the message out to the 53 million, and that's like the first tranche, right? It's like the early adopters, if you like. In order to get the message out, we, we want to put together, we want to put together the operational center. We'll have a film studio, a little film studio, a little recording studio. We'll have places to do uh, workshops so people can come in and do Vita um, LifeWise uh, training in LifeWise philosophy and the practices of. Um, and then we ha want to have uh, like a little workshops and so forth. So we can, we produce like this jewelry range that have all got environmental themed jewelry. Plus there's an archery tradition that we're putting some work into and a few other things in order to generate revenue so that we can continue to tell the story and not constantly rely on donations. But as we are a registered charity, we, we can accept donations. And what we're looking for in the first instance is probably around a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. To maybe get something like a five-bedroom rural property and use that as the operational center. Each of the rooms becomes basically like a film studio, recording studio, meditation. We have a, a meditation practice called Vitan meditation. Um, 
that's that's the big plan and we also want to uh, attend the cops the climate cops because at the climate cops you've got a mass concentration of people that really think this way yeah, much more you know your average person on the street probably about eight percent of the public that's where that 53 million number comes from about eight percent of the western public would jump on this if it were properly explained to them and i think that concentration at the cops is close to about 90 percent hey guy what did you do for a living before you had your revolution um so i spent my first uh my first real job was a couple of years working in the uh, offshore oil exploration industry and that's where I, that's where, so, so my father worked with nuclear bombers, right? So from the age of about 13, I knew that humans could destroy humanity. And he gave me a book called Earth Abides about a um, pandemic that kills off most of people on earth. And there's a few survivors. And so age 14, I knew that nature could destroy humanity. And after a couple of years in the oil industry, I realized that humanity, humans could destroy nature. And that triggered me because that's wrong. It's just wrong. And it's taken me a long time to understand why it's wrong. It's wrong spiritually and it's kind of wrong rationally as well. And so, so I did a couple of years in oil. And from that, I did an environmental science degree and did environmental consulting and then set up a sustainability advisory around that for about six years. And then the GFC basically took that out. And then I started writing and uh, kind of been freelancing since. And then I was doing a master of business at QUT which is where I conceived of the idea of what is now Vita Sapien and LifeWise philosophy. I've been on a parallel course to you, and my revelation goes back 30 years when I decided that every decision that I took, whether it was to replace the washing machine or uh, look for a particular area to work in, I would equate the environment in with it. And I find myself now living well uh, as mick said i got the oam this year for services to humanity i'm living a decent life for human beings and i'm also living the life that that is life on the planet i i don't have any emissions at all uh we we used the second lockdown covid lockdown to completely uh remove gas from our living completely so got an electric car, got everything electric and um, and enough solar panels to cover that. But I see, uh, I, 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 rather than your sort of evangelistic approach, I see myself as a model that other people can say, hey, look, uh, our three people who follow us can invite me on to their program and I can explain the nuts and bolts and the costs of the journey that we took to become emissions free, whereas you chose a different site. You've you've chosen to publish booklets and now films as well. Is there a reason that you've decided to become an evangelist rather than an influencer? <laughs> well, I'm I'm actually hoping to be an influencer, but I don't have right now. I don't have a proper a proper infrastructure to do it properly, nor a proper budget. And look, uh, I, I, I view the, um, the climate ecological crisis as a war. Um, it's a war. And in a war, there are thousands and thousands of different roles. You know, so obviously there are the frontline fighters that go into the trenches with the machine guns, but then, then there are the support behind them, the, the, he- the head and the tail. And, um, and so I'm sort of like, a, I'm an independent minded kind of free thinking kind of guy. So I just went, 
looking for the part of the war that wasn't being properly executed. And, and I think it's one of the most fundamental and important parts is that if we've got to be able to have a proper conversation about the philosophies of our lives that we hold in order to have some clarity about where they're taking us. And that's what, that's what I'm trying to do. And also spirituality, when you come into the field of spirituality, it's extremely murky and very difficult to get your head around. And so what I've done is I've sort of just selected out six core themes to make it easy to have a conversation about the subject of spirituality and where spirituality fits into raising an army to fix the global the global problem it's quite extraordinary to see on both sides of the atlantic these extreme heat conditions i mean the first week of july was the highest temperatures recorded in history since records began um given that we're seeing such extreme temperatures across the northern hemisphere it's getting much worse and it's getting much worse very quickly Wake up now. A 20-second excerpt from a 13-minute-long video where a father and a scientist is sitting blocking the traffic and talking about why he's there, talking about the climate emergency, which this week is once again trending, as it's called on Twitter. The hashtag climate emergency is tweeted up to 10,000 times every hour. Morning, everyone. I expect to see more increased heat waves, more storms, fires, floods, more threatening food security, more geopolitical uh, instability. Things are going to get worse, and they're going to get worse until we somehow manage to stop burning fossil fuels. At the moment, policymakers are continuing to cling on to what I argue is a complete fiction, which is that, don't worry, we can avoid the worst impacts of dangerous climate change. In fact, we can limit warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius, the 1.5 degrees Celsius commitment that came out of the Paris Agreement and then was confirmed at the International Climate Conference in Glasgow. Every nation, pretty much, on Earth has signed up to the Paris Accords and is committed to do whatever it takes to limit warming to well below 2 degrees. On the other hand, they're doing nothing to stop the burning of coal, oil and gas. In fact, the United Kingdom, which is held up as one of the leading nations on climate action, for good reason, you know, there is in terms of legislation and, and policy and process, an awful lot the United Kingdom has done, is still miles away from being able to get to supposed net zero by the middle of this century. The Committee on Climate Change report just yesterday just really demonstrates how big that gap is and how much bigger it is getting over time. So how can policymakers continue this fiction? How on the one hand do we have natural scientists, climate scientists, ecologists, people who study the Earth system telling us in ever increasing detail that we are heading towards catastrophe? But at the same time, politicians are saying, don't worry, we don't need to do anything radically different. We don't need to challenge growth-based economic uh, policies. We can continue developing new oil and gas. The reason they're able to do that is something called net zero, which is basically a promising note in the future that we will remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the Earth's atmosphere. So this is why 
10 years ago, you would have never heard of net zero. And now today, net zero pretty much means climate action. Because through net zero, politicians and industrial leaders can tell us that don't worry, we have plenty of time. We can extend those carbon budgets for 1.5 or 2 or even 3. Because at some point in the middle of this future, we will be removing gigatons of carbon dioxide. What they don't tell you is who the we is in that instance, because it's not me. I'll probably be dead um, unless there's some amazing inventions regard to rejuvenation technology because we're thinking about technologies that need to be scaling up 2050, 2060, 70, 80, 90 over the rest of this century. It's our children, grandchildren and future generations who need to somehow fathom out how we are going to essentially repair and recover the climate damage that we're doing now. So just to conclude my statement, if I may, um, we are doing this knowingly. We know that the longer that we delay phasing out fossil fuels, we know the more we resist the kind of policies and approaches that would actually keep us safe, the greater the burden we are putting onto younger future. In politically relevant timescales, it doesn't matter certainly beyond four years, any kind of electoral cycle, and even in the context of intergenerational justice, it is extraordinarily unjust for us to be imposing these needs on future generations to keep them safe. And let's not kid ourselves. If or when these technologies do not materialise, they'll be facing a world well beyond two degrees, maybe even three degrees Celsius. The activation of tipping elements in the climate system, and the worst-case scenario is a transition to a hot Earth scenario, which could see ultimately the devastation of civilization itself. Thank you. Thanks, James. James Dyke, Associate Professor in Earth System Science at the University of Exeter in United Kingdom. He spoke at an event organized by the Climate Majority Project in the UK. And here's a scientific input on that talk we had about renewable energy in the beginning from our former chief scientist here in Australia, Alan Finkel. He spoke to Nick Healy from ABC Shepparton recently. As individuals, we often feel that, you know, there's only so much we can do. We've got to recycle, but we don't know where that recycling goes. You know, we've seen that there's been some, you know, RG regarding soft plastics. We don't necessarily trust the system. But we're very slow as individual consumers to change our buying behaviours in such a way that would allow business to change their manufacturing or growing or whatever they need to do to make some real change. You know, buying out of season has just become the default now. So consumer decisions exercised through their purchasing power that you were alluding to is probably the strongest thing that we as individuals can do. Of course you can do your recycling and it's the right thing to do and it has an issue, you know, it has an impact on local environment and landfill and things like that. But if you want to actually contribute to changing the system, it's the signals that you send back to companies. Don't forget there's the single most important thing for a company that's in business and wants to be successful and survive is to make things that people want to buy. They have to listen to their customers, whether they're a giant company selling to other businesses or a retailer selling to individuals. And so the message gets back. Let me give you an example. There's a company that's only started two years ago in northern Sweden called H2 Green Steel. And they're a startup. And their business is to make steel without using metallurgical coal. No coal, no carbon, no carbon dioxide emissions whatsoever. So we won't go through the full details, but basically they would use hydroelectricity, which is 
green in northern Sweden and hydrogen made with that hydroelectricity, the combination of the electricity and hydrogen can substitute for the coal and they can ultimately make green steel. But it's, they're the first ones to go to full scale. There have been some prototypes, so it's going to be very expensive. They're a startup, and they have raised more than $5 billion in this single enterprise, which is a staggering amount of money. How have they done that? Because they've got forward orders. They've worked with customers. Who are their customers? BMW and Mercedes, car manufacturers, Electrolux and Mealy, appliance manufacturers, because BMW and Mercedes, Electrolux and Mealy are listening to their individual purchases, the regular citizens who are making car buying decisions, and not all of them, but some of them are willing to pay extra to be early adopters and to express their concern about emissions. And so some of them will be prepared to pay 86,000 euros instead of 80,000 euros for a luxury Mercedes or 3,000 euros instead of 2,500 euros for a Miele dishwasher. That signal is getting to those appliance makers and they're looking for providers upstream to give them what they can use to provide a zero emission steel car or a zero emission steel appliance. So it's the end purchaser who's using purchasing power to send a signal all the way up through the manufacturing chain. Can anybody still deny that we are facing a dramatic emergency? That is why today I call on all leaders worldwide to declare a state of climate emergency in their countries until carbon neutrality is reached. Now, our next guest is Neil Plummer. And Neil used to work at the Bureau of Meteorology, so should know a little bit about climate. In fact, he is a climate scientist. Uh, Neil, tell us about um, yeah, what's up front for you at the moment and what your work involves. Sure. Uh, th- thanks very much, Tony, and, and, and thanks to all of you for the opportunity to um, uh, to be on the show today. Uh, so, so as you said, Tony, I'm a climatologist, for, former head of um, climate services in the in the Bureau of Meteorology. Um, I now work with organisations um, on their climate related risks and also to capture opportunities for them through the energy um, and energy transition uh, we're going through. I'm also on the board of Geelong Sustainability, um, and Geelong Sustainability released some really positive news uh, last week, and that's what I'd like to talk talk to you more about. Um, so that launch was um, a new community program to help communities across the Barwon Southwest transition away from gas to all electric homes powered by solar and battery storage. So, so the offering here is installation and upgrades around solar systems, battery storage, hot water, heat pumps, split system air conditioning, and EV charging, where the, um, the objectives here, it fits very much with the discussion we had at the start of the show around supporting the region um, to reduce the use of fossil fuels, um, reduce their carbon emissions, electrify, and fast-track the uptake of renewable energy uh, on, on the road towards achieving net zero carbon um, emissions. Now, the other important thing here, of course, is because of because what we've seen um, uh, with increased energy prices in, in recent years, the pressure both that and inflation has had on cost of living, um, many people in our community 
there's also the potential here for significant cost savings, um, where estimates from rewiring Australia has put those cost savings could be around $3,500 per year. Geelong Sustainability, working with three key partners here, um, RACB Solar, Jess Tech Plumbing, and Reclaim Energy. Um, those partners were selected through a rigorous um, selection process to make sure that communities uh, were getting the, the best products at, um, at, at good prices here. And the whole program is also supported by um, the five local councils in, in the region. So lots of strong uh, strong support. It's not the first time it's been done. Um, this follows the success of the Geelong Community Solar Program in 2021. That saw two and a half megawatts of solar and battery storage installed across the region, along with solar donations to eight community facilities. So Geelong Sustainability being a not-for-profit a for-purpose organisation. That money, that and any surplus is recycled back into the community. So um, uh, we're able to uh, donate, um, make donations um, to uh, community facilities uh, that really, really need it. Now it's great for me to talk about this. I love talking, talking about this. Um, the the actual work, the hard work behind this is just Geelong Sustainability. Uh, sustainability staff, CEO Dan Cowdell, uh, Emily Flynn, uh, project manager here, Karina Donkers, they're doing the hard work. And of course, they stand on the shoulders of uh, many others in the Geelong sustainability community. Um, how you can find out more about this is through, um, is through the website electrichomes.com.au. Um, you can register your interest on that site. Uh, it also provides information to the information sessions that are gone, and there's um, there's one starting in Geelong uh, on August the the second, and then information sessions will be held in four other centres: um, Torquay, Apollo Bay, Colac, and Bowen Head. So lots of opportunities to talk to people uh, about uh, about this program, and also to attend the information sessions. So that's a Quick run through, Tony, Mick. Um, so, Neil, um, to put this in another way, I'm just thinking so that uh, the people who come after us, Bob, Terry, and Ken, if they were to uh, understand what you've just told us here, how would you then say it? It's, it's just in sort of more plain language. Sure. Um, a lot of people at Geelong households and businesses have got these very high energy prices now, including through through gas. This program offers a relatively easy way to transition from using the fossil fuels into clean energy. Um, and it's not like it's the first time. Now, this has been done in many households and, and businesses. Uh, it can be done. And the potential for cost savings is also large. And Neil, were you once a Geordie? <laughs> You're right, Colin. That's Excellent, you, you've been able to pick, um, pick that out. People confuse me for being Welsh, Scottish, other parts of the, uh, the, the UK, but rarely do they land on a Geordie um, first up. I, I don't mind whether, I don't mind Scottish, I don't mind um, <laughs> Welsh, I don't mind Danish, in, in, in fact, because there's a link there between Northeast England and um, yep. 
Vikings. Uh, 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 but you're but you're right. I come out um I come out forty two years ago uh, mm. to uh, to 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 Australia. But the further north you get in England, as you probably know, Colin, and you get into Scotland, um, you don't really lose the accent, and that was That's... the case with me. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm, uh, I'm a great supporter, uh, if at a distance, of Geelong Sustainability. Uh, it was through Geelong Sustainability I got my car. And I'm, uh, yes, I, I'm grateful for the fact that you, we, what we have in Geelong is a group of like-minded people who are able and willing to help people turn the planet round. And I think this is commendable. Uh, I've used it in the past, and I urge Bob Terry and Ken to just give Geelong sustainability a ring. Now, whereabouts is this meeting on the August the 2nd? Uh, Geelong Library, that, that meeting has actually been booked out really quickly. So I think Geelong Sustainability are looking at having additional dates in, mm -hmm. in Geelong. So that's the, yeah, that's the one on the 2nd of August at the Geelong Library. The next one's August the 7th in Torquay, both lunchtime and evening sessions. And then in the days beyond that, we go Barwon Heads, Apollo Bay and Colac after after that. But yep. hopefully there'll be another another Geelong one uh, put Good. in there. Well, look, I'd like to be part of that as well. And look, if you need somebody to stand there and talk about the uh, effects of taking the route of uh, lower emissions... I'm happy to do that. And I, I can say that I haven't paid a bill since February 2021. And that's electricity, certainly not gas, because that was when we came off of gas, or fuel for the car. All of that is now down to my rooftop solar and a battery. Terrific. Great to hear, Colin. This is Colin. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict, is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. Our hour is soon up. And before we round off, I would like if Neil first and then Guy, if you could just talk a little about, about the word scalability. You know, how do we take this from the 5%, the 8% into the 80%? of the population who all say, yes, this is what we need to do. And therefore, at the next election, which is coming in a year, it will be absolutely clear for the politicians that unless they get on board, they're yeah. not going to get elected. Yeah, I think I think we're, we're actually seeing now governments engage a lot more on this issue and, um, and, and recognizing of the, the challenges with building infrastructure, uh, with supporting uh, uh, communities, um, so our state government, you know, providing subsidies for uh, towards uh, renewables, having things like uh, a gas substitution roadmap, um, of which of which programs like this uh, support, sort of lend lend into. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the the challenges are ahead, but. Um, Virtually all the technologies we need are available now. And most people have got back, uh, got way past the issue about is climate change real and um, how do we solve it? Solutions are known. It's now really only a question of, of how quickly um, we, we, we move. And um, 
we we talked earlier about around the world what what and Colin gave and Colin I'm sure could have taken up the complete hour with stories from around the world. But if you just look at the last last four year, three or four years or so, yeah, let's pick New South Wales. Um, there were communities in New South Wales um, that went through drought, heat waves, bushfires, COVID, and floods within three, four years. Um, what is completely underestimated here is the compounding nature of the fact we're seeing climate and weather extremes happening more frequently and more intensely. And that's the underestimation people are still making. And yet we have that evidence there in our own backyards of communities impacted in a way that in living memory have never been impacted before. Guy Lane, scalability. Yeah, um, I think I think fundamentally Right now, we've got a small core of people in in the Western world who are who are really clear on what's what's going on and are active. And what we need to do is to get more and more people involved into that space. And what is holding them back from getting involved in that space is is their beliefs fundamentally, and the way that they find their spiritual expression. Now, now it seems funny to say, but spiritual expression, for example, recreational fishing, uh, sports, these things all fall within the definition of a religion, basically in as much as that there is a belief that there is like a supernatural and a sacredness and, and there are canons of conduct and behavior. What we're trying to do with Vita, with LifeWise Philosophy, is to create like a plug-in that can plug into any any culture, any religion, any spiritual or non-spiritual philosophy that adds an ecological sustainable component. So, for example, if you look at the, the Bible, just as using as an example, there's practically nothing in the Bible that is of any help whatsoever with dealing with the climate and ecological crisis. It doesn't have the word climate change in there. And of course it can't, right? It can't because it's 2000 year old philosophy. So what we're trying to, what, the way that, that LifeWise is worded, it's not um, uh, contradictory. It, it's complementary. It, it's designed to plug in. And if we can approach people at the level of their beliefs, then beliefs manifest into the real world through actions and inactions. And that's one way of getting more people engaged in the fight. And in the spirit of what we have talked about in the program today, I think we should end with a prayer. The prayer was uh, the ending of a speech that Gail Bradbrook gave just, I think, last week. She is one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion UK. I want to end by offering a prayer of dedication because this is a time where the magic source, the spirit, is the thing that the other, the system doesn't have. Yeah. Uh, we dedicate our lives to hospicing the systems of destruction including within ourselves, to resisting harm, to protecting and building islands of sanity, sanctuary and sanctity. We ask for our arrogance based in separation and fear to be released. We ask that we can forgive ourselves and each other. May we remember who we are, feel where we belong, and see with new eyes. May we trust in the mystery, in aliveness, and in love. Thank you.
and of course to also be the difference. Difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. I know the world's gone mad. It's true. Be the difference. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the difference, be the difference, the darling, the future's watching.